In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. This week I came across a little article online about what the author calls birthday ambivalence disorder, or BAD for short about some of the ambivalent feelings that we have about birthdays. You know how when we're a kid, we, we always look forward to that day, the party, the cake, the presents. Even as a teenager, we can't wait to drive. We, we can't wait to be legal. As we get older, though, some of those uh, other feelings creep in. Um, disappointment when expectations are too high or memories of past birthdays when certain loved ones were there who are no longer with us, or just the realization, I'm not as young as I used to be. Most of the time, those feelings come and then they pass. But birthdays can also be a time to look back and remember, or to take stock of where we are in our lives, to, to think about where we want to be headed. And of course, that is true not only of us as individuals, but of us as a people. As this weekend, we celebrate our 244th birthday as a nation. So a time to remember, a time to reflect. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the president on June 2nd ordered the National Guard, using tear gas, to clear a group of peaceful protesters out in front of the White House so that he could walk across to St. John's Episcopal Church in Washington with some of his administration. The event quickly drew criticism. The head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff apologized for taking part in the whole thing. The bishop of the Episcopal Church said it was an inappropriate use of both the Bible and the church. You don't typically get a four-star general and a bishop both criticizing a sitting president within a couple of days, but it really did happen. And it raised again the whole issue of the relationship between church and state. So if you asked most Christians what that relationship is supposed to look like, um, if they were biblically literate, uh, they would likely look first at our first scripture reading today that Gordon read from Romans 13, which in my translation reads, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Those are Paul's words to the church at Rome around the year 58 AD. But if that person were a more astute student of the scriptures, familiar with its nuances and not just its direct passages, they might also look at our second lesson from Revelation 13. Now, the book of Revelation tradition tells us was written by a man named John somewhere around the year 90 AD, or about 30 years after Paul's writings. And that 13th chapter begins, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 
ten horns and seven heads, ten diadems upon its horns, and a blasphemous name upon its heads. Now, as you probably know, the book of Revelation is written in highly symbolic language. And so if we're going to begin to understand it, we have to start by decoding it. So the beast in this passage refers to the state, to the Roman government, which, of course, was ruling the Mediterranean at that time. The seven heads refer to the seven great Roman rulers, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Thespasian, Titus, and Domitian. But there were three minor rulers who ruled for only a short period of time, and so there are ten horns. The diadems refer to the crowns worn by the emperor, and the emperors refer to themselves by names, which the scripture refers to as blasphemous. Names like Son of God, or Nero referred to himself as the Savior of the world. You see, between 58 AD and 90 AD, between the time when Paul wrote and when John wrote, something had happened in the Roman government, what we call emperor worship. And so these two verses, one which says, be subject to the governing authorities, and the other which declares those governing authorities to be a beast, they are not really inconsistent. The first of those says, be subject to the governing authorities when what the authorities do is according to the will of God. The second calls us to remember that when governing authorities take power that does not belong to them, or when their dictates fall outside the will of God, then we are to speak against and reject them. Paul didn't hesitate to use the legal system of his day. He was proud of being a Roman citizen. Peter, on the other hand, when told by those authorities, don't preach in the name of Jesus, immediately went out and disobeyed, as did all of the prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah and Jeremiah, Amos and Hosea, as did our American forefathers, many of them Presbyterian. You remember that King George III of England referred to the American Revolution this way. He said, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. So the church should be the conscience of the state but it should not be the backdrop for a photo op for political advantage. The historian John Meacham, in his wonderful book, The Soul of America, takes us back to a scene from our not-too-distant past, birthdays being, of course, a time of remembering. Meacham writes this. On the autumn evening of Thursday, October 7th, 1948, South Carolina Governor Strom Thurmond, the segregationist Dixiecrat candidate for president, addressed a crowd of a thousand inside the University of Virginia's Cabell Hall in Charlottesville. The subject at hand, President Truman's civil rights program 
one that included anti-lynching legislation as well as protections against racial discriminations in hiring. Thurman was having none of it. Such measures, he thundered, would undermine the American way of life and outrage the Bill of Rights. The message was clear. He and his fellow Dixiecrats offered, quote, the only genuine obstacle to the rise of socialism and communism in America. Nearly 70 years later, in the heat of a Virginia August 2017, heirs to that Dixiecrat platform of white supremacy, 21st century Klansmen and neo-Nazis among them, once again gathered in Charlottesville, not far from where Thurman had taken his stand. The story is depressingly well-known. A young counter-protester, Heather Heyer, was killed. And the President of the United States, himself an heir to the populist tradition of Thurman and Alabama's George Wallace, the President said that there had been, quote, an egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. As if there were more than one moral side to a conflict between neo-Nazis who idolized Adolf Hitler and Americans who stood against the Ku Klux Klansmen and white nationalists. David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the Klan, said in Charlottesville, We are determined to take our country back. We are going to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump. That's what we believed in. That's why we voted for him, because he said he's going to take our country back, and that's what we got to do. But of course, the president's comments in Charlottesville were of a piece with his equally divisive language on immigration, among many other subjects, including his political foes and women. You'll remember that in May of 2018, the administration's zero tolerance, tolerance policy took effect, intentionally separating children from their parents, putting them in cages, with no provisions whatsoever for how to reunite those families. The president had been laying the groundwork for that policy for a year in advance, consistently referring to all immigrants as drug lords and rapists and murderers. Because the reality is you can do almost anything to almost anyone if you paint a dark enough picture of them and instill enough fear. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court blocked the White House's attempt to end protections for some 700,000 immigrants who were brought to America as children. And while this was a victory for the so-called DACA children, it is also a vivid reminder to us of this White House's intentions and policies. 
In a second ruling that same week, the Supreme Court also denied the White House's attempt to exclude LGBTQ Americans for protection under the Civil Rights Act. Had that gone through, gays who could have been married on Sunday could just as easily have been fired on Monday simply because of their sexual orientation. John Meacham takes us back again to that same presidential campaign in 1948. Harry Truman, you remember, won that presidential campaign against all odds, defeating Thurman and New York's Thomas Dewey. In that campaign, Truman said this, You can't divide the country up into sections and have one rule for one section and one rule for another. And you can't encourage people's prejudices. You have to appeal to people's best instincts, not their worst ones. You may win an election or so by doing the other, but it does a lot of harm to the country. Truman understood something that his immediate predecessor, FDR, had understood 10 years earlier during the 1932 campaign. The presidency, said Roosevelt, is not merely an administrative office. That's the least of it. It's more than an engineering job, efficient or inefficient. It is preeminently a place of moral leadership. Truman and Roosevelt, Lincoln, Eisenhower and Kennedy, Johnson and Reagan, among others, understood that the president has not only administrative and legal, but moral and cultural power. A president sets the moral tone for the nation. In the spring of this year, with COVID-19 in full swing here in Michigan, armed protesters, not only not wearing masks, but brandishing assault weapons, invaded the state capitol in Lansing. Remember that in August of 2019, a Fox News survey, a Fox survey, revealed that 90% of Americans favor universal background checks. 81% favor taking guns away from at-risk individuals. And 67% favor banning assault weapons. But the same president who dispersed protesters in Washington, speaking of those protesters in Lansing, tweeted, Liberate Michigan. Highly divisive language. John Meacham again gives us some historical perspective. He writes, All has seemed lost before, only to give way after times of gloom to light. And that is in large measure because in the battle between the impulses of good and evil in the American soul, what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature have prevailed just often enough to keep this national enterprise alive.
the American creed, of which so many have written so often, can find concrete expression only when we choose to side with the angels. But that is a decision that must come from the soul. And sometimes the soul's darker forces win out over its nobler ones. The message of Martin Luther King Jr. that we should be judged not on the color of our skin, but the content of our character dwells within the American soul. But so does the menace of the Ku Klux Klan. History hangs precariously in the balance between those extremes. Our fate is contingent upon which element, that of hope or that of fear, emerges triumphant. There was a time in our not-too-distant past where extremely conservative Christians and politicians to the far right could argue, I think with some plausibility, that their voices were not being heard. But we no longer live in those times. The voices that are silent today are those of faithful, rational people, Democrats and Republicans alike, in the middle. The Bible is clear. We are to hold both of these chapter 13's intention. Be subject to the governing authorities when what they do is of the will of God, but speak out against them when they are not. In the days leading up to our independence, Edmund Burke famously wrote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. Time to find our voices. Amen. <laughs>